With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is the Unraveled podcast with hosts Kayla Barring and Nicole Richards. Join us as we unravel a new case every season. You are listening to Season 1, The Nightmare in Ada. I'm Kayla Barring. I'm Nicole Richards. And you're listening to Unraveled. In last week's episode, we left off with a pretty big piece of news, which is that Denise Haraway's body was finally found uh, and that there was some evidence found with it, in fact, that she had been shot and likely not stabbed at all. And when we left off, Nicole, you mentioned that we would talk this week about how that would affect the appeals process that Tommy and Carl had started. Yeah, because... The thing is, is that the case was based so solely off of these confession tapes. And in these confession tapes, um, Carl and Tommy talk at great length on what they did to Denise Haraway. And so when this body is finally found, obviously this is a huge break in the case for the attorneys defending Carl and Tommy because they now are able to kind of look at what had happened. Now they finally have this physical evidence that really they feel points to, you know, things going in their direction, that it's a positive for the defense attorneys, that this is going to be an opportunity for them to get back in the courtroom and defend these guys with the bit of information that these tapes don't even match up to how Denise was actually killed. Yeah, and so the the effect that that would have on an appeals process is that it opens up a whole new avenue of of a reason to request an appeal. This is new evidence, and when you have new evidence that would have changed the outcome or very likely could have changed the outcome of a trial if that evidence had been available at the time of trial, uh, then that is going to give you an opportunity to get an appeal on that basis. And finding this body and finding that so many things didn't match up with the confessions is huge. And you'll recall just from when we talked about the trial that the whole strategy to begin with was just showing how nothing matched up with these confessions. But what you were able to show kind of stopped at comparing and contrasting mostly what Tommy and Carl each said because there was no other evidence. There was no body. There was no crime scene other than McAnally's, which had been destroyed, essentially. There was nothing to go off of. So this ends up feeding a lot into the opportunities for appeal. And the thing about appeals is that an attorney is going to go at an appeal from as many angles as they can. You aren't going to go to an appeal and say, all right, we've got Denise's body, we've got some new evidence, and that's enough, let's write an appeal based on that, and that's it. 
you're going to include as much information and as many different arguments for appeal as you can. And it just so happens that there's also a Supreme Court case going on that affected Tommy and Carl's case, or, or that really kind of um, overlapped with it. And that Supreme Court case was Cruz versus New York, and that was decided on April 21st, 1987. And this is it's kind of a complicated legal case, so I, I'm going to do my best to break it down and to make it somewhat understandable. Um, so when you go to trial, you have the right to face your accuser. So, for example, we've been talking for a while with this made-up uh, example of me and Nicole being at a party and me leaving my wallet on the table and then it disappearing while Nicole is standing by the table and so I accuse Nicole of doing it. Um, and so if Nicole were to go to trial for stealing that wallet, if they were going to use the fact that I had accused Nicole... Nicole would have to have the opportunity to cross-examine me, or the way that it plays out realistically is that her attorney would have the opportunity. So I would have to take the stand and say, you know, Nicole stole my wallet. I put my wallet on the table and she stole it. And then her attorney would cross-examine me, and a good attorney would ask questions like, well, were you watching your wallet the whole time? Did you actually see Nicole take your wallet? Did you even see Nicole look at your wallet? Were there other people at the party? Were any of them by the table? These sorts of things. So you get the opportunity to ask that person questions and to break down their story so that you can show a jury that maybe their story doesn't have as much validity as it seemed like it had when they were just getting to tell their story. And so because of that, we have this right. We have this right to confront our accuser and to, to ask them questions about these accusations that they had made. And in Tommy and Carl's case, they both had confession tapes and they were both on trial together. And in Tommy's tape, he's accusing Carl of taking part in the rape and murder and kidnapping of Denise Haraway. And at the same time, in Carl's tape, he's accusing Tommy of all of those same things. So legally, they each have the right to cross-examine the other one. Carl has the right to have Tommy on the stand and to cross-examine him and to ask questions about those accusations that he's made. And at the same time, Tommy has the right to have Carl on the stand and to ask Carl questions about the accusations that Carl made. But they were on trial together. And another right that our Constitution gives to people who are on trial is the right to not incriminate yourself or the right against self-incrimination. And that we see a lot in the TV shows. It's called, you know, taking the fifth or pleading the fifth. That's the Fifth Amendment. It doesn't the way that it shows up in TV shows isn't actually usually real or the way that it, it actually happens or the way that that right is actually used. But what it really means is that I can't be forced to testify against myself. I can't be forced to get on the stand and give testimony that is going to hurt me, that is going to admit that I did some wrongdoing, that I broke the law in some way. And so... 
that is why a lot of times people don't testify in their own hearings. Um, And that's usually the advice that an attorney gives. And that's something, Nicole, we talked about in the episode when we talked about Tommy getting up and making a statement in his preliminary hearing. We talked about all the reasons that attorneys usually advise against their clients getting up and making random statements or even testifying in their own trial. There's just a lot that can come up on cross-examination that could be problematic or that, that, that could paint a certain light even if your client isn't guilty. Um, and so most defense attorneys in most cases will advise against their client getting on the stand and most clients will take that advice. And in that same manner, neither Tommy nor Carl testified in that trial. And so what that essentially meant is that when that confession tape from Tommy was played, Carl had the right to cross-examine him. But because Tommy was taking advantage of his right against self-incrimination, Tommy didn't get the opportunity, or Carl didn't get the opportunity to cross-examine Tommy, even though Tommy testified against him. And the opposite was also true. Carl's confession tape was testimony against Tommy, but because Carl took advantage of his right to not self-incriminate himself, and he did not get on the stand, it violated Tommy's right to cross-examine Carl about what was said in that confession tape. Does it, that make sense? Because I know that's yeah. really complicated. <laughs> I think it does make sense. And I, and I think in this case, it you know, what we're getting to with this is that um, they this case, this Cruz versus New York, which was a Supreme Court case, again, had nothing to do with Carl and Tommy, but it... It basically is the case that points out just what you were talking about. That we, that this, when two people are tried together... And um, they have confession tapes. And they have confession tapes. That this is, this is a problem. And that it was obviously re- relevant to Tommy and Carl's case because the judge immediately had their attorneys um, write up reports saying, this is the case, write to me and tell me why it's relevant, and we'll, we'll then apply it to Tommy and Carl, which is exactly what they did. They, they took the Cruz versus New York case, they applied it to Tommy and Carl, and with with that they were able to immediately both be granted new trials because of what you've just explained and it's it can feel rather complicated i think you know supreme court cases are not the easiest to to pull apart but i think you did a good job in explaining it and and in our case the biggest thing is that it granted them both a new trial immediately and because it you know it wasn't enough to have the body and to have this new evidence, that would not have necessarily, if I'm correct, granted them a new trial. They were they were hoping so in the appeal process, but they could have been denied that in the appeal process. You know, yeah, the judge could say, you know, there were already a lot of inconsistencies in the tape. One more inconsistency would not have made a difference. I mean, we don't know what the judge would have We have no way said, to know which way that would have gone. They, but They easily could have denied that. But with this case, and so they filed their appeals at different times. Carl's attorney filed pretty quickly and he got a new trial right away. For some reason, Tommy did not get a new trial until about a year later 
1988. But they did both once they filed for their appeals. Each got their own separate yeah. trial. And we don't know why um, Tommy's conviction took so much longer. I mean, it is. It, uh, Carl's was August 11th, um, 1987. And it wasn't until May of 1988 that Tommy's appeal went through. And then they were both finally granted new trials. So the second trial uh, for Carl Fontenot began on June 6th. and of it, 1988. 1988, yes. June 6th, 1988. And this trial, uh, thankfully, was not actually held in ADA um, because both the prosecutor and the defense attorney had asked for a change of venue because they, at this point, knew that there was no way that they were going to be able to find an impartial jury if they had stayed in ADA. Um, The same Judge Powers is going to preside over this trial, who had also presided over the first trial. And and so this starts to go... The prosecution basically, you know, presents the same case that they had done in the first trial. Um, There is still no solid evidence against Carl Fontenot. And the biggest thing, of course, that comes up again is the confession tape. And so the prosecution does talk about how many of the details of the confession tape are false. And but they say that the they're still able to kind of stick to that the essence of this tape is true, that Carl Fontenot had kidnapped, raped, and murdered Denise Haraway. And you know, it, it kind of, from the prosecution perspective, it plays out just very much the same. It's, it's they, they have this tape, and I, I really feel like, once again, in the second trial, we really see a team of attorneys that are just kind of relying on the fact that, sure, um, the medical examiner has been on the stand, and the medical examiner has talked about um, some of the details of Denise's body, the main one being that she was shot in the head, and that her body showed no um, signs of being burned, and then they play this confession tape, and the confession tape does not match at all what is um, what the evidence now shows, but it still comes down to the fact that you have somebody confessing. And once that gets played, I think that the defense attorneys again, or the prosecution, I'm sorry, the prosecution again is saying, okay, well, here is this, we're just going to kind of hand you this tape and let you decide for yourself. And so that's kind of, you know, it plays out from the prosecution perspective, it, it plays out very similar as the first trial. Um, in terms of Fontenot's defense, what they relied primarily on at this point was a psychiatrist who had spent several hours with Fontenot. And now this is something new because in the first trial, you know, Carl Fontenot is not um, under any kind of evaluation. They don't talk about him much on what his mindset is or, or what kind of person he is. And the Defense just didn't go that way, but in this trial, they absolutely do. And so they bring on this Oklahoma psychiatrist by the name of Dr. Joel Dreyer, and he testifies that Fontenot suffers from post traumatic stress disorder. Um, he connects that says that he does not believe that Fontenot killed Denise Haraway. He describes to the jury how Fontenot's mother had been killed in front of him 
um, while their car was stalled on the freeway when he was a child. And that he goes on to kind of get into this story about how Fontenot is willing to kind of confess and take this on because he has a sense of worthlessness and he believes he should be punished for his mother's death. Um, so it kind of goes down this road of kind of talking about what Fontenot's headspace is like. He then also says that Fontenot has an abnormally low intelligence, that he is not bright enough to distinguish between right and wrong, and that he tells lies to police officers to get attention. And... There's another, they bring another uh, another psychiatrist on, and this is the director of psychiatry, who also had examined Fontenot before the trial. And she says that she doesn't believe that Fontenot understands his Miranda rights um, and that he doesn't understand what the meaning of a confession is. He doesn't, he doesn't understand what that means. And so that is kind of, you know, surprisingly a twist in this defense is that they really try to to talk about Carl and that Carl doesn't really understand what he's gotten himself into, that he doesn't really understand what a confession is. He doesn't understand what he what kind of trouble he's in and he hasn't understood it since the beginning. And and we've kind of touched of this throughout the episodes touching on um, some things that have happened, some things that Carl has said. Even so, in our last episode, you know, at the sentencing hearing, when Carl said, let me know when you find the guys who did this, um, that it seems like Carl doesn't really understand the gravity of what's going on around him. Yeah, absolutely, he doesn't. And, and you know, unfortunately, during closing arguments, you know, we have di- assistant district attorney again, Chris Ross, and he just really kind of hammers these psychiatrists and and kind of, you know, he plays up sort of what this, you know, these prejudices that were definitely prevalent in Oklahoma at the time, and that is against sort of mental health professionals and, you know, that these are kind of quacks and these doctors don't know anything, and that's kind of how the trial is. And so I don't know if, I think it's great that they brought it up finally. I think that it was a... part of Carl Fontenot that needed to be addressed, like we had talked earlier. We didn't really get into who Carl and Tommy were, but Carl comes from a long history of deeply traumatic experiences, and one of them being the death of his mother while he was on the side of the freeway with her when their car had stalled, and what that did to him as a small child, and kind of the trajectory of his life. And we didn't get into that, but I think they tried to touch on this, and I don't know if, I mean... I, I honestly, it's it's um, unclear if it was useful or not. I mean, we can go on to say that, you know, the case went to trial or went to the jury on June 14th. So it was only an eight day trial. It was very quick. The juries deliberated for about an hour and then they had their verdicts. And again, they found Carl Fontenot guilty of robbery, kidnapping, and first-degree murder. And, you know, Nicole, something that we were just chatting about before we started the recording today is whether or not it actually helped to take out that confession from Tommy. Now, in their first trial, they had these two confessions. Both confessions were played, and all they kind of had to go off of was saying, look at the inconsistencies within these confessions. There wasn't a whole lot of facts out there 
that they could work with to show that the details of the confessions weren't true. I mean, there were some, you know, the the house that had been burned down months before Denise disappeared um, and different things like that. But because her body had not yet been found, it was difficult. It was, There wasn't a way to say, okay, we found the body and there's all of these inconsistencies, whether you're looking at Carl's tape, whether you're looking at Tommy's tape, not only are there inconsistencies within them, there are inconsistencies with the facts surrounding, you know, what actually happened to her. And I think that in the case of their first trial where there was no body, what those two confession tapes did was serve to kind of bolster each other instead of break one another down. And I have to wonder if in the second trial, once they had her body, once, um, you know, once they could show how many things were wrong, how, you know, she was shot, she wasn't stabbed, she wasn't burned, she, you know, they only had little bits of fabric, but it looks like she was not wearing what Tommy and Carl both claimed in their confession tapes that she was wearing. And being able to show, hey, look, there's this consistency out of all of the inconsistencies in these confession tapes, we have this consistency where they're both claiming she was wearing the same thing, and the evidence shows that it's not true, so that must mean that information is being fed to them. And so I think in this second trial, it actually, you know, it's, it's so hard to know, in hindsight even, but I think that that not playing Tommy's tape in the second trial may have actually hurt more than it helped. And that's exactly what Fontenot's attorney felt, you know. It was kind of the great irony of this case that she had found, was that once you kind of omit Ward's tape, Fontenot seems more consistent um, because the jury is not aware of the contradiction between the two confessions. It's like it, it actually didn't work in their favor. So... Again, he's found guilty in all three accounts. Now, again, the jury has to deliberate the penalty. They only deliberate for about three hours, and then they recommend that Carl, Carl Fonsado be put to death. Um, Judge Powers, again, is the one who sets an execution date. It is now set for October 5th, 1988. And yet, it, execution will be automatically stayed pending appeal, and so he does have the opportunity once, you know, uh, the appeal process can go on and on. It's not um, it's not the end of it for him, but he has been now for the second time found guilty on all three accounts and been sentenced to death. And we'll talk in a minute about Tommy's trial, too, but just to, to kind of stay on course here with Carl, you know, he does appeal right away mm-hmm. um, because he's now on death row and, and sentenced to be executed in the near future. There is a decision on appeal that uh, the jury was only given the decision to put him in prison uh, for For life life. or to, to put him to death. But there was no option to put him in prison for life without the possibility of parole. And that's an important distinction because just putting him in for life doesn't actually mean for life. It means... You're Until available. You, you can you go can get out parole. Some right, right. Um, and so it was found that that was an error in the judge's instructions that there wasn't an option to uh, sentence him to life in prison without the possibility of parole. And so the appeals court sent it back only to redetermine the sentencing. He wasn't given the opportunity to have a new trial. the The guilty verdict wasn't overturned at all, but. It was sent back um, to have the sentencing reevaluated, and ultimately, he 
was then sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Right. And so that for him was the only, you know, we can see it as a as a uh, as a positive, but you know, he wasn't going to be killed, which is great, but he was yeah, he was automatically given that sentence of life without per- the uh, the possibility of parole. So Meanwhile, um, like we said, it took a while for some reason for Tommy to get his appeal granted based on the fact that both confession tapes had been played and he didn't have the opportunity uh, to cross-examine Carl. Uh, yeah, he but was he did not. Get a new trial. Yes, and but it did not start until May of 1989. So you know, this is this is quite a ways out. At this point, we've already gone past. You know, uh, Carl has already been given the new sentence, and so now we're in May of 1989. And and we don't need to go into why this happened. It had a lot to do with a turn being. Um, given an attorney and you know he had he was originally given uh Wyatt again as his attorney and and Wyatt was ill and so eventually he's given another attorney he is the trial is also moved from Ada um which is great news um that the that this was happening and you know again the prosecution was virtually the same as the Fontenot trial, and it just kind of goes on and on, um, and it builds up to the showing of Ward's confession tape, and then they rest. It's, you know, it's, it's very, very much the same. So, but the defense this time, they decide to try a new tactic, and the first thing that they do is they put Tommy Ward on the witness stand in his own defense, Um, which does leave him open to be cross-examined in front of the jury. So Ward goes on and he tells the jury what he's been saying for years, that he's innocent, that he had told the police he was innocent, that only after they had been badgering him and badgering him did he tell them about a dream he'd had, that the police went on to tell him that the dream was about the Haraway case, um, and that they, he says that they pressured him until he made a taped statement. Um, and he assumed that when they found out that this was a lie, that these tapes weren't true, is that his hope was that he would be freed. And he did admit to telling a series of lies while being in jail, but he swore that, you know, now I'm, I'm telling the truth. And that's just, it's, that's just such a difficult sell. Um, and especially, I mean, that's difficult even if you have a friend who lies to you over and over, right? It's like the boy who cried wolf, you know? You have a friend that lies to you over and over. It's hard even with somebody that you're close to to say, okay, I'm going to believe you this time. But you've got someone who who's on the stand, so they've already been accused, which psychologically most people assume if someone has been accused, there's a reason for it. And then you have him telling you, I've lied over and over and over again, and he's only had maybe an hour, maybe two, if that, to build rapport with the jury, mostly while talking about how he admitted to brutally raping and killing someone, and then to believe that you will build enough rapport with these 12 strangers that they will trust that this time you are telling the truth. And I think that maybe his attorney saw it as the only possible way to overcome this confession tape was to get him on the stand and explain why he did it. Um, But that's a really, really difficult sell. 
Yeah, and I and you know there wasn't we don't have much information of what happened on cross examination. I don't think it was anything really of use. I think you've mentioned before it's. I don't know if it had done any good to have him on the stand. You know, he just kind of said what he's been saying. I think from our perspective, Grady, he keeps telling, you know, he he keeps claiming his innocence, but I don't think it I don't think it worked much in his favor to be up there. And and again, now this defense does the same that they had done in the Carl Fontenot case and they bring up a um, Oklahoma County psychologist. And this is Dr. Edith King. Um, she testifies that she had administered four psychological tests to Ward um, while he was awaiting the second trial. She says that the results showed Tommy Ward to be passive, non-assertive, and sensitive to others. She said that the test did not show him to be violent or antisocial, that he seemed religious, had positive family values, and his general attitude was, quote, mainstream. She also goes on to say that she watched the two videotapes of Ward's statements. Now, remember, there's two videotapes. The first, whereas he's claiming his innocence, that was the October 12th tape. She says that that tape appeared normal, but that the second, quote, confession tape um, was too rehearsed and automatic, she said. And it seemed as if he was reciting lines. So, you know, again, they've brought up you know, somebody, a, a psychologist, to try to kind of say, to try to influence the jury that, and not only was she talking on Ward's behalf, but she was also saying these tapes don't seem right. You know, these tapes, these tapes don't seem to match up. One tape seems very natural. One tape, the confession tape, doesn't seem very natural. But they kind of leave it at that. You know, we kind of move on to closing arguments. The jury had only been listening to testimony for about 12 days. You know, again, very short trial when we think about those two first trials. Um, the jury's deliberated. The jury deliberated for several hours, kind of over two days, and then they handed down the verdict. And once again, Tommy Ward was found guilty on all three accounts. And they go into the penalty phase. Um, the penalty phase only lasts a couple of hours for them. They come out, and he is given a penalty of life in prison. And so Tommy, unlike Carl, which I found to be really surprising, right out of the gates was was not given the death sentence, where um, Fontenot had been given that. Though he, he eventually moved over to life without parole, you know, uh, they did originally kind of sentence him to death. So, Although maybe that was because they didn't have another option. I wonder if the original jury for for Carl, if they had had the option of life without parole to maybe begin they with, maybe yeah. they would have done it. And in the case of, of um, Tommy, you know, it was found out that there was like a lone female juror um, who kind of refused to vote on the death penalty. She was the only person that was unwilling to vote uh, a positive for the death penalty, and she just held out and um, eventually was able to sway the jury to give him a, in a sentence of uh, life in prison. It turns out that there was information that wasn't available to Tommy and Carl's attorneys during the second trial. 
Uh, and one thing that did come that came out in Tommy's trial was that he had an alibi. He had at one point said that he had been at a party the night that Denise Haraway was kidnapped, which to some extent does actually also match up with the story that is being told by the prosecutor because they had, you know, this character, Jeff Miller, who we mentioned early, early on, um, who showed up at the police station and said, you know, Tommy was at a party that night and then he disappeared for two hours with a truck and came back and cried and said, um, I, you know, I kidnapped somebody and I killed somebody. Um, but pretty quickly, parts of that were destroyed. Um, you know, the person whose truck he supposedly took, the police found her and she said, I would never, ever let Tommy drive my truck. Um, so parts of that were broken down. So in one respect, this matches up uh, with with both scenarios. Uh, but in another respect, it's still important information that Tommy has an alibi. And in his, in his trial, he... Uh, has a girl testify for him who says that she was at this party the night that Denise Haraway died, uh, that Tommy was also at the party. She describes the party with a lot of detail, um, and that detail also matches a lot of detail that Tommy had originally included in his description of the party that he said that he was at. And it turns out the same person who testified for Tommy, uh, the, the Oklahoma police, they spoke to her Early on, um, they spoke to her, and she she told them that she was with Tommy. She told them you know, basically this alibi for Tommy. And when attorneys, when a defense attorney gets a case, they request discovery from the from the district attorney, from the government, uh, for all of the information, and particularly exculpatory information. So information that might show that their client did not commit the crime. And they had this information. They had the information. The police had spoken to this girl. And that information was never turned over. Um, so even though uh, Tommy's attorney ultimately did find this girl and have her testify in Tommy's, uh, in Tommy's trial, Carl was supposedly at that same party but did not have the benefit of having this person testify at his trial. Um, and that was one of the many problems that came out after these trials, after these men had been uh, convicted again. And this could be something minor. Maybe it wouldn't have made any difference for Carl the same way that it made no difference for Tommy in the long run. But this wasn't the only thing that wasn't disclosed to Tommy's attorney or to Carl's attorney in their second trials. So the most notable thing, obviously, that happened in between the first trial and the second trial is that Denise's, Denise Haraway was found. Her body was found. There was, first off, like we said, uh, finally, a crime scene that could have been preserved, but wasn't. But wasn't, yeah. Um, but then the, there's the actual body, the bones that they've collected, and those bones are um, sent on to a medical examiner. And, and like we said, unfortunately, the medical examiner did not get any photographs of the crime scene, um, so only had the bones to go off of. The medical examiner was not made aware that there was a crime scene that they could have gone out to and gone and seen that. Um, so that was another disadvantage that they were facing there. Um, but then there's the medical examiner's report, and that, as part of discovery, gets turned over to Tommy and Carl's attorneys. 
and what has come out in the years that have gone by since this case happened is that part of that medical examiner's report was not released to the defense attorneys, was not released to Carl's attorney, was not released to Tommy's attorney. And there were two key pages that were not provided, even though it had been ordered that the government had to provide full disclosure of the medical examiner's report. So when we left off last week's episode, we kind of left a little bit of a cliffhanger there, Nicole. We mentioned that there was something huge that came out after this body was found. Yeah, we, um, you know, I remember when you had first told me about this case, and this was the bit of information that I found to be the most surprising, only because not only was it the most shocking, but it's also, as you've been talking about, it was the piece of information that was just omitted from the medical examiner's report. So if you can imagine you're an attorney, you're getting ready to defend, you know, Tommy or, or an attorney getting ready to defend Carl, you ask for a medical examiner's report. Now, mind you, this report also has shown that the body has been shot and not stabbed, that the markings on the ribs that were at first mentioned and said possibly could be stab markings were later found to be 98% uh, accuracy to having bed from animals. Um, you know, so these are huge bits. That would have been enough to me to say, okay, well, clearly these uh, this body is showing that she was not killed in the way these confession tapes said, but that wasn't enough. You know, confession tapes are huge, and we've seen that time and time again. But this bit of information that was left and omitted and just not handed over to the defense attorneys is really the piece of information that, to me, should have just completely changed the course of these two individuals' lives. Absolutely. So there's a key piece of information that was on these two pages of the medical examiner's report that were never released to Carl and Tommy's attorneys. And what the medical examiner found when looking at Denise's bones is that her pelvis showed markings that indicated that she had given birth to at least one child. And so let's break down what this means. When Denise Haraway disappeared, she was about 25 years old. She was recently married, um, and her friends and family say that she has never, ever had a child. There's no record that she has a kid. There's no reason that anyone would believe that she had had a child at any point um, while she was alive, at any point before she disappeared. Um, there is someone who said, who shortly before she disappeared says that she had shared that she was about three months pregnant at that time. This information doesn't come from her husband. It comes from a friend of hers. So it's difficult to say is that true? Was that in fact the case? Was it not? I'm not 100% sure one way or another, but we do have this account saying that when she disappeared, which just to remind our listeners was April 28th of 1984, so the end of April in 1984, she disappeared. Potentially, she was three months pregnant. Now, Tommy 
and Carl were both arrested in about mid to late of October of that year. So April 28th to mid to late October. Now that is about six months. Um, So what we are insinuating, based on this medical examiner's report, based on the fact that there's no record that at any other point in her life that she had any children, is that at some point between when she was abducted and when her body was found, she gave birth to a child. And that means she also would have had to have been held somewhere for that, for the duration of that time. It changes the entire course of what has happened, really. Because it's not only has she... Her remains show that she's given birth. So, yes, she was definitely taken, held long enough to be able to give birth to a child, which means that there is a a place where she was held. That means that she was not actually dead at the time that Tommy and Carl are being arrested for her murder, rape, and and death. And it completely changes everything. everything. When I think, at least for me, when I came into this case and when I first read about what happened and, and I kind of went through the case in the same order that we've gone through it, on this podcast, you know, even though I didn't believe that Tommy and Carl's confessions were true, I kind of assumed that something along those lines had happened, that she had been kidnapped and and probably murdered within, you know, 24 or 48 hours of being abducted and not that she was still alive somewhere. And so, you know, like I said, yeah, when Tommy and Carl were arrested, it was about six months after she was abducted. So you could maybe say, well, it still could have been Tommy and Carl. She could have given birth right before they got arrested, and then they murdered her, disposed of her remains, and then put this baby somewhere else? Right, but that still doesn't make sense because she would have had to have been held somewhere. So were Tommy and Carl having somebody else hold her? I mean, it it would completely change their involvement. It would change their ability to pull off what they said they had pulled off. And it would, it would just set a totally different ball in motion. And the other thing I think that we really have to acknowledge is that this piece of information was included in the medical examiner's report. So it was in the report. It said it in the report that her pelvis has shown signs that it has given birth to at least one child. And that that piece of information was withheld and not given to the two attorneys who are trying to defend Tommy and Carl. I that's the part of it that I find so very problematic. That Well, and just, you know, we have talked about all of the ways in which these confession tapes are completely inconsistent with the facts. But then you throw in this idea that they omitted if if we are to believe that Tommy and Carl are guilty, which I don't, I don't think you do, uh, but if we are to believe that Tommy and Carl are guilty, we now have to believe that these confession tapes omitted six months of them having her locked away somewhere, which just seems 
impossible. And the truth, you know, the truth is uh, either she was, in fact, three months pregnant when she got abducted, which is, is possible, but you would expect that that information would have at some point come... Maybe she didn't tell her husband. I would think that she would have told her husband. So you would think that that information would have come out during the trials at some point when her husband, her family, her friends, all, you know, who took the stand and testified that somewhere Which leads that me would to believe out. that they didn't know. That they didn't know. And I think that... Or that she wasn't actually three months pregnant. I mean, this is coming from a single source who says she was a friend of of Denise's and maybe she wasn't and if she was not pregnant when she was abducted that would have to mean that she got pregnant while being held while being held which would mean that she wasn't murdered until at least nine months months after she was abducted Mm -hmm. which would mean that she was murdered while Tommy and Carl were in jail awaiting the trial for, for her murdering death. her. Yes. Yeah, so I mean the thing is and I think that what I come back to is the ability for something like this to not make its way into the courtroom. I think how do people end up in these cases? How do people end up being found guilty in this case they're found guilty twice and I think well now there's this piece of information that just didn't make its way into the courtroom and how absolutely unacceptable that is in terms of what we think of for criminal justice, what we think of of our court system, what we think of, you know, finding people, that people are um, innocent until proven guilty, you know, this kind of basis that our whole system is founded off of. If we have pieces of information like this about Denise, you know, we didn't have DNA then, but we do have the ability. This is a major break in this case. This is a major bit of information, and it never made its way into the courtroom. And I find that terrifying. I find that that if I were to ever be falsely accused of something, that the things that are out in the world that could prove that I have not pr- committed this crime, the thought that those things would not make it into the courtroom feels totally unacceptable. And, well, and shocking. And we don't have the answer to this question, but the, my big question is why? Why didn't it make it into the courtroom? Was there some inadvertent, innocent mistake, which I find difficult to believe, but some innocent mistake where paperwork got shuffled and that didn't make it into the hands of, you know, somehow those two pages were accidentally left out and it wasn't on purpose and that the, you know, that the... District Attorney Bill Peterson and Chris Ross that they just skimmed over that in the MEU's report and didn't see it because they were only focused on the cause of death, which I suppose is possible. I mean, you're looking at the medical examiner's report. You only care about the cause of death. You have these two young men saying that they caused the death in one way, and you have the ME's report saying they caused it in another way, and the rest of the information is just kind of like basic identifying information, Mm -hmm. you know. Caucasian woman between the age of, you know, 25 and 30, mm-hmm. blah, blah, you know, the kind of stuff that you already know about Denise. And so did they actually legitimately glance over that and not realize that it was there? Or did they know that it was there and they knew that it caused a problem with their case? And so they 
intentionally, purposely withheld oh, those two pages when they sent the report over. And and we don't have an answer to we that. We don't. And I think my mind more goes that way. I think I don't know how two individuals could have been this sort of unlucky almost in some ways when we look at their what they were stacked up against, you know. And... Um, and when I think of pages being omitted from a report that are happen to be the two pages that are the most valuable to the defense, you know, my mind automatically goes to that that was done very purposely, that that was um, an intentional decision somewhere along the line. I think my, my mind goes into, you know, is the medical examiner's office reliable? Is the, you know... Are these institutions working together? Are they reliable? Should there be um, a third party brought in in cases like this that are not connected to the districts of which um, these bodies or these cases are being tried? You know, my mind just goes into all of these ways where we should be trying to avoid these kind of um, cases that are getting so, so tainted. But in this case, this is where we are. This is the bit of information that never made its way in. It's the bit of information that I find to be one of the most, um, after a case full of twists and turns, like one of the most shocking bits of it. Well, and it's not, I mean, I know that you're just saying a bit of information to des- describe what, what we're talking about, but it's, it's not even like, it's not a bit of information. It's a, it's a human being. Yeah. So even even going beyond the fact that like, Denise had a baby. She probably had a baby while Tommy and Carl were already in jail for her death, meaning she was still alive. But even putting all of that aside, where is this human being? If where, that, that's the assumption where that, is this yes, person? That's the assumption right? that somebody took this child and raised this child. Or who knows? I mean, was this a stillborn child because she wasn't being taken care of while in captivity? And if so, where where's that body? What did, what did her yeah. captors do with that child? Or, you know, was this child also murdered and, and left with her but taken away know. by animals before she was found? Yeah. Or is there out there somewhere some you know somebody in their late 20s early 30s who has no idea that they're Denise Haraway's child yeah and these are the questions that were left with this case absolutely and it just it baffles me i can't i i want to believe that this was an oversight on the part of Bill Peterson and Chris Ross where they just you know, they didn't realize it. And there's there's been some reporting on this case over the years, um, you know, especially when uh, when John Grisham wrote the book The Innocent Man. Um, that was also involved the same prosecutor, Bill Peterson. Um, you know, there was a jailhouse snitch who, who testified in the first hearing against Tommy and Carl, and that same jailhouse snitch gave almost the same testimony in in the case that John Grisham writes about where, you know, the snitch says, I, I overheard, you know, blank person saying that they did blank and you just fill in the person and the crime and, and they were testifying to it. Um, and so when John Grisham wrote that book, this case also ended up getting some more publicity because he mentions this case in that book. And, and this case also had its own book written about it, which we've talked about. Even through all of this publicity that this case has gotten and the, the media that is out there, the new articles that have been written about it, this is not talked about anywhere in the media. It's not discussed 
anywhere. And that's just shocking to me. And it's it to me, it feels like a lot of what happened in the early reporting and in Ada, where they were reporting on it and people weren't even mentioning the fact that it was a dream. You know, even when Don Wyatt went out and said, these confessions are just a dream. And they didn't, that didn't even make it into the newspaper. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a confusing turn of events, surely. And um, it has been surprising to me that it's not information that has just kind of been uh, brought in and really just sort of been the piece that would change the course of what has happened. But it hasn't. And it really hasn't seen the light of day. Yeah. And so... You know, this brings us really close to the end of this season, and we're going to wrap up next week. And with the, with this new information, with everything that's happened, with the appeals that are available to these gentlemen, we are going to talk next week about where where are they now and what has happened with this case. We'll touch briefly on, on what we want to do with this podcast in the future. Um, we'll give our own reflections on what we kind of think about this case, what I think, um, what, where we both stand with it, and, and what, um, what this case has really shown, you know, each of us about sort of our criminal justice system overall, really. And if you've got questions or input or thoughts, um, let us know. And if you have questions, we'll do our best to answer them on next week's show. You can tweet us at Unraveled Pod or me at Caleb Aring or at Unraveled Nicole and tell us what you think and we'll, we'll do our best. Thank you for listening to Unraveled, Season 1, The Nightmare in Ada. Your hosts are Nicole Richards and Caleb Aring. Producing, mixing, and editing done by Caleb Aring and Matt Van Horn. Music by Broke for Free. Voice talent by Joe Eager. Tune in next week to listen to more of this Case Unravel. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.